Let me start this whole semester on relationships by telling you a story about my friend named Russ in high school. Uh, Russ Edwards, uh, actually I knew him in college, but when he was in high school, uh, he got up the nerve to ask this girl out to go to the movies, right? Solid, probably ninth grade year uh, date. And so he asked this girl to go to the movies and... Now, I don't know why he did the next thing he did. He asked a friend to come with him. So um, he asked the girl, and then he got a wingman to come with him. And uh, they went to the movie, and as they were sitting there... Did you do that, Wyatt? Did you do that or something? Okay. Oh, Jorge did? Okay. Um, You're giving high fives, man. I don't know what you're doing. Okay. And so there they are in the movie, and it went like this. It went, Russ, girl, Russ's friend, right? And uh, after a period of time, Russ got up the courage and the boldness to hold her hand. So he kind of, you know, made his move and slid his hand right in here, and she led him, right? So then they're interlocking fingers, and he was thrilled and nervous. So their, their hands are sweating, and they're doing this, probably, you know, the death grip. And uh, at one point, he leaned over to whisper something into her ear. I don't know what it was. But as he leaned over to whisper in her ear, he looked over, and she was also holding his friend's hand. And it was confusing, it was bizarre, and it was difficult. And that's kind of like relationships, right? They're, they're, they're elated, you're elated. There's so much fun, there's such propensity for joy and deep happiness and satisfaction But there's also like deep hurt and confusion and sadness. And all of these things sometimes can happen within a matter of minutes in relationships. And so what we're going to do all semester long at RUF here on Wednesday nights is we're going to talk about relationships and dating and sexuality and marriage and friendships and all of the beauties and the complexities and the brokenness therein. And because I don't, I'm not in and of myself an authority on relationships, I did a whole bunch of them bad, and then I finally uh, conned one into saying yes. Um, I'm not just going to sit here and tell you what I think. What we're going to do is we're going to open up the Bible and see what the Bible thinks about uh, relationships and our sexuality and how it is that, that God has designed us, at least according to the Bible. And so uh, we're just going to jump in tonight. And uh, if you'll hold, uh, or if you'll look in front of you at the white sheet, I'm going to be reading the passage that's there in front of you. And um, in this, you're going to, we're going to read this passage. You're going to say it doesn't have anything to do with relationships. You're right, because before we can jump into the deep end and start really getting into a lot of the nuts and bolts and the intricacies of relationships, what we need to do first, and what I want to do first, is in a sense take a step back and ask the question. Why should we pay attention to what the Bible says about relationships? Because it is a book that at its youngest is about 2,000 years old, and at its oldest is 3,500 to 4,000 years old. How in the world could an ancient document inform us at all about the way we ought to live and think about relationships and sexuality? So that's a tall task and a tall order, and we're going to give it a shot. I think the Bible is up to the task. So if you would look right there, I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. This is God's Word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born, (laughs) born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray just real briefly before we look at it. Father, I pray once again that you would be with us, that you would send Holy Spirit to come and uh, illuminate this passage for us, that he would unstop our ears and our hearts, that we might hear from you. Lord, get me out of the way so that these students in this room may see Jesus and how beautiful he is, and how in your word we, we find the truth about who we are and about how it is that you've created us and about what it is you've done in Jesus to redeem us from all of our brokenness and the mess of our lives. We pray that you do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys have made that important transition in life when you went from buying cheap sunglasses to actually buying more expensive sunglasses? Let's little show of hands here. I see that hand. Yes, about about five of you. Not there yet. We don't have jobs. That's okay. Um, Let me tell you something about sunglasses. There is definitely a difference between the sunglasses you get at CVS or at Walmart or the gas station and the sunglasses you get at Sunglass Hut or, you know, a store like that where you're paying hundreds of dollars. And the difference is not small. So for most of my life in high school growing up, I would just go buy the cheap ones. I would go and work with my dad on the oil fields, and it would be stupid to have gotten the expensive ones, so I didn't. But then uh, it's been about four years ago when I saw the light um, when a friend of mine had these sunglasses called Maui Gems. I didn't know what they were, um, but he let me put them on, and at that moment I knew that I needed them. It wasn't just a want. I needed these glasses. And so I asked for them for Christmas and got a pair. Uh, about three weeks later, I was playing softball, fell off my head, shattered a lens. Not bitter. And, um, but the difference between those lenses was amazing. And it really was, like through the old lenses, the world was just kind of cloudy, and you would get a stain or kind of some haze around the edge, and it wouldn't get clean. And with these new lenses, everything was brighter. It's almost as if you were seeing things better with the glasses on than you were without the glasses. And what I'm going to suggest and try and develop this whole semester is that that is how the Bible works. That yes, it is possible to go out into the world and to just kind of observe and see what's happening and to live your life kind of aside from the Bible. But what the Bible says about itself and what I think is absolutely true about about what the Bible is, is that it is like putting on a pair of really, really nice sunglasses. That it illuminates everything for you. Things become clearer. That it actually will begin to make sense of your life, uh, your life and your lives in ways that the other glasses couldn't, in the way that any other worldview, I would even suggest, can't. Now, that's a tall order. But Peter here starts 
answering some questions about how the Bible does this. And he does it by talking about the nature of Scripture, the nature of the Bible itself. What is it? Where is it from? What's its purpose? And why we should think about it. So let's go in from there. First, right there on the outline, you'll see, where is it from? Where is the Bible from? And I'm going to set that up by giving you two scenarios. In the first scenario, think about this. You're in high school, and uh, you've had several people, and you've even noticed yourself, that you have some pretty good skills in basketball. And the people have suggested, hey, you ought to think about going to a summer camp to kind of further develop those skills and to hone some of the natural abilities that it it looks like you have. And so you think, okay, sounds good enough. My coach is telling me, some adults are telling me to do that. My friends are saying I'm I'm pretty good. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to go find a camp to go and and train at for one summer. Now, if, if money is no object, what is the single most important question that you will ask when you think about what camp do I go to? Who's coaching it? Right, who's leading the camp? Or sometimes it's a team leading, but, but who is at the helm of this thing? Who's going to be giving the instruction and the demonstration and the coaching? Okay, scenario two. You, are, um, you notice that you've been having these headaches that just won't go away. And they're getting worse and worse. And you're talking to a friend and you're describing the condition to her. And she tells you, you know, I, I think there's something wrong. I think that, uh, that you ought to go get that checked out. I think you're having a stroke. Now, how do you evaluate whether or not to take your friend seriously? You obviously need to figure out who she is, who this friend is, what are her credentials. Is she just another 18-year-old student at TU who maybe you met in class yesterday? And in that case, you would say, uh, thanks? Thanks? Or is she a friend from back home who's a a neurologist, neurosurgeon, and she actually knows what she's talking about, and she knows all the classic symptoms, and she's looking at you saying, you're having strokes. The source of the information, the source of the coaching, the source is everything. The source matters. And so here in this letter, we just jumped kind of right in, and so it might have seemed bizarre, and you didn't really know what Peter was saying. That's okay. But what Peter's saying is that I am someone you can trust. That I'm a a reliable source. Now why? Who is Peter? What's his authority? What's his source? How can he say that? And he answers that in two ways. The first way is this. In verse 16, if you'll look down right there, Peter says very plainly. He says, we were eyewitnesses. Now, the we there, we would figure this out if we were to read the first part of this letter. The we is Peter, James, and John. And the thing that they saw that they are eyewitnesses of is this, this account from the Gospels where Jesus went up on a mountain with these three guys, Peter, James, and John. And this amazing thing happened. He was, he was clothed in bright light, and it's called the transfiguration. And, and Moses shows up, and Elijah, and these guys from the Old Testament. And it's just this, it's really this bizarre scenario. And Peter's here talking to these people he's writing this letter to saying, I saw it. I was an eyewitness. Now, you guys are here to you, so I, I know that you know what an eyewitness is. It's someone who sees it with their own eyes. 
Peter wasn't even relying on second-hand information. This wasn't the telephone game. It's not that he heard it from his dad or his mom. He is saying, I'm telling you about Jesus. I'm telling you the things that I'm telling you because I saw him. I walked around with him. I followed him when he was alive. I saw him die on the cross. He died. He really died. I saw them put him in the tomb. And then most miraculous of all, he's saying, I saw him. I was an eyewitness to him after he was raised from the dead. Now, look, if you have come from outside the Christian tradition, maybe you've never heard things about the Bible at all, that is going to sound bizarre. That someone was dead and then this whole Bible and this stuff is saying that he's now alive? And I would say, yes, that, that is the central claim of Christianity, is that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and he died. And even his closest followers, such as Peter, and we'll talk about that in a second, even his closest followers left. They said, well, it's all over. But then three days later on the third day, they saw him again alive. And it changed everything about them. So Peter's saying, I'm an eyewitness. You can trust me. I'm an authority on these things. I was there. But he actually doesn't just say that. He goes on to say that all of Scripture is a trusted, it can be trusted because its ultimate source is from God. So Peter says, you can trust me as a reliable source. But even beyond that, you can trust all of Scripture. You can trust the whole Bible because it's not just a bunch of people writing things that then somehow in the 4th century the church decides, oh, we think this is the Bible, and they put it together. That's not how this works. Peter's saying that God the Holy Spirit was speaking and revealing Himself and His message to people, and they were writing it down. But that's what Scripture says about itself, is that it is God's Word. He says in verses 20 and 21, you can see right there in front of you. It says, knowing this, first of all, and in Greek that means of first importance. He says, this is so important, you have to get this, that no prophecy or no writing of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or explanation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So he's saying, you can trust me. I knew Jesus. I saw him. But you can trust something beyond that. You can trust that these things that you're reading and that I'm telling you have as their source the ultimate authority. God himself. Now, I I don't know all of you. I hope to get to know you over the course of this year. Uh, So I don't know what background you're from. Some of you, no doubt, uh, are not from Christian backgrounds and would not call yourself a Christian. And that's great. We are so glad you're here. We hope that you come back and and listen if you want to and uh, listen to us sing these songs and read them or whatever you want to do. So I don't know. Maybe in in other traditions, um, the conception of God is different. But at least in the Christian framework and conception, when, when you talk about God, you're talking about the source of truth. He is the source of truth. It's not just that God says true things. He's the source of all that is true and right in this world. And so Peter's grounding his confidence in what he's telling his his readers here. He's grounding their confidence in that source. Uh, How many of you guys saw the unbelievable movie Inside Out this summer? Pixar? (sighs) It was amazing. It was amazing. If you didn't like it, 
You can't tell me that. Um, I'm not going to say everything that could be said about that because we'd have to do a whole other sermon and that would be long. Um, But I will simply say this. This movie is incredible in that what John Lasseter and all the other people at Pixar did was that they took this emotion of sadness and said, sadness is not something that we should sideline. Sadness is something that we need to live full lives. Now, that may sound bizarre, and we can talk about that later over coffee or something. But here's the thing. When, when Laster and the other Pixar folks got together with the mind, uh, put their minds together on what they were going to do in this movie, they had an intention with what they wanted to communicate to the people who were watching. And that was it, that sadness is important. God, when he reveals Scripture... He's saying, there is, there is truth here. And this matters because as we go through the semester, and as we look at the Bible as it concerns relationships and sexuality and all this stuff, or as you join a small group and, and you open up the Bible and talk about it with friends, or even if you open up your Bible by yourself one day, or your phone Bible, or whatever it is, You can know that this isn't just some random compilation of things written by people. That God, by His Spirit, was weaving these things together. And He was ultimately producing them. He is their source. That does not mean, you have to hear me say this, that does not mean that everything that you will come across or read in the Bible is going to be easy for you to apply in your life. Or that you will just open it up and say, oh, well, I know what I should do now from this 3,500-year-old document. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's always simple or simplistic. I'm saying that you can trust it. And that it is true. So the Bible has its source, its origin, and authority in God as he reveals himself to the various people who wrote it. But next, we see that Scripture has a purpose. It has a purpose in why it exists. In the same way that the purpose of that basketball camp exists to train you and to to hone your skills, and in the same way that the friend's words, if if she's a doctor after all, are meant to help you uh, move toward healing, In the same way for that, the Bible has a purpose in its intention. What is it? Peter says it this way in verse 19. He says, And we, having the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What does that mean? Peter is saying that the Bible as it comes from God, serves like a light that illuminates the world for us. Like a lamp shining in a dark place, he says. When I was in high school, I grew up in Duncan, Oklahoma, which is a nothing of a town in southern Oklahoma. And so on the weekends, my friends would do things like this. They would get in their trucks, inevitably, with these, like, million-lumen spotlights, and they would fasten them on a rearview mirror or something, and they slash we would drive out into the country, and you'd turn these lights on. You'd just drive around until the, the, the beam of the spotlight came across an animal. Doesn't matter what it was, just looking for an animal. Uh, it might have been a pig, it might have been a deer, it might have been a cow. Cows weren't as fun because they belonged to someone. But anyway, you would go looking for things. 
And when you found said things, you would either chase them, um, if you're an animal lover, maybe close your ears, you'd shoot them, um, you would do all kinds of things. Now tell me this, is the point of going out there with this huge light to just stare at the light? No, you would probably die. You would probably melt from the inside. From, and these things were really bright. Lights don't just serve for us to look at them and just say, man, it's a really bright light. Lights exist so that they may illuminate and bring clarity and knowledge to the things around them. Friends, that is the purpose of the Bible. The Bible isn't just a light to be stared at. It's not just a document that kind of has its own telos. It's not an end in and of itself. What the Bible is, is it is a... It's a book, it's a story that is telling the story of how God created this world. And then how the world rebelled against Him as Creator. And then how God came in to rescue the world in the person and work of Jesus. And how then Jesus is now doing that rescuing and redeeming and restorative work in people. And how then we as people who have been changed by Jesus go back into the world and seek to bring healing and restoration and justice and beauty where all of that has been lost through sin. That's what the Bible is saying. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal the story of God's love for His creation and His unfolding plan for how through Jesus He is going to rescue and redeem and restore this creation. That is the message. That is the story. That's the purpose. And what that means is that the Bible speaks to all of everything. It has in its view the whole world. And friends, that very much includes you and me and our relational selves and our sexual selves. That stuff is very much included in what the Bible puts forth as, as areas that were created one way, which have been messed up and broken by sin and the fall, in which Jesus has come to say, yeah, you need healing there also. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to pay for our sins so that in 40 years we can go to heaven and not have to go to hell and burn. I'm sorry if you were told that at a summer camp. Jesus came to do way more than that. He came to to come and shine a light on your life and the world around you and say, this is how you were created to function. This is how you were meant to live. This is how you were meant to use your sexuality in a right and good way that will not only be good for you, but will be good for others and will bring glory to God who created it. And that is, that message I acknowledge is antithetical, is the opposite of, of kind of the cultural message that we hear and that exists out there. Because what we hear, and I I put myself in the boat with you, what we hear all around us in articles, uh, in memes, in in videos, everywhere, what we hear is that the world exists for me, that my pleasure and my joy is the end-all, be-all to everything. That we live this kind of self-focused individualism that quite frankly has us consuming as much as we can to try and bring us joy and happiness and fulfillment and freedom. And what the Bible is saying comes into that and says, as long as you put yourself at the center of the story, you will not find those things. But 
when you will see that the story is centered around Jesus and what He has done for you to change those things, then and only then will you find the life and joy and freedom and hope that you've wanted all along. It's only found in Jesus. And so the Bible has its purpose, the message, as its purpose, the message of Jesus and what He's doing. So finally, and hopefully quickly here on this last one, why bother? Why bother taking the Bible seriously? Why bother coming on Wednesday nights or joining a small group or maybe even getting a Bible if you want one or need one, I'll give one to you and reading it. Why bother? The answer to that really doesn't come in what Peter says here. The answer to that question comes in the fact that Peter is saying it at all. If, uh, if you were here last year in RUF, um, we spent the whole year from August to May just kind of marching through Mark's gospel. And Mark uh, was a friend of Jesus. He was around during that time. And he was writing an account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And one of the things that you learn quickly in Mark's gospel is that Peter is a screw-up, a class A does not get things right. Jesus calls him to follow him, and Peter does. But throughout the three-year life and ministry of Jesus, Peter is messing up all over the place, putting his foot in his mouth, doing stupid things. It it really, Peter has been a great comfort to lots of Christians through the years who are trying to follow Jesus and just can't seem to get it right. But there was nothing more devastating for Peter than when at the end of Jesus' life, when the social kind of tide had really turned against Jesus and people were, were taking him to be crucified, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, when he was asked if he knew Jesus, Peter three times said, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus told Peter he would do that. And upon the third time when Peter did it, this rooster crowed, And Peter realized, oh my gosh, I just did the thing. I looked at Jesus and told him I would never do. I'm a failure. Friends, that, that same Peter who failed Jesus and was never getting it right, in this passage written several to many years years later, looks right down in there. Look right at the beginning. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ... How can Peter, the failure, the one who never got it right, call Jesus Lord? Well, it was because after Jesus was resurrected, as I mentioned earlier, after Jesus was resurrected, he came looking for Peter. And friends, that is the story of the gospel. That's what Christians call the good news, is that, look, what we know about ourselves is that Uh, Whether or not we know all of God's laws or whatever, we know that we don't do all things right. And in some cases, we don't do many things right. And what Peter's story tells us and what we learn from him is that Jesus comes after people who don't do things right. That Jesus comes and pursues, faithfully pursues people who have been unfaithful to him. He comes and loves them and he forgives them. And he did that for Peter. And he finds Peter on a beach and he comes and has this conversation with him. He says, Peter, follow me. Imagine that, y'all. The last thing, the last interaction Peter had had with Jesus was when he had failed him. The next thing he hears from Jesus is, follow me, Peter. I will still have you. 
You haven't outsinned me, Peter. Even though you denied me, that's okay. I still want you. Follow me, Peter. Why bother? Why bother studying the Bible? Because what we believe is the Bible has a message in here that is better than anything in the world, that it is the true story of your lives, of the fact that you know at some level in your heart that you have not measured up to some standard out there. You may not even know where the standard comes from. But you know that you have fallen short of it and you fail it. And the Bible is a story about, about a Jesus who comes after failures at tremendous cost to himself. And on the cross, dies for all of your and my failures. And he offers us forgiveness and says, I will have you follow me. I don't care about all of your broken sexuality and the the public things and the private things you've done. I don't care about that. I've taken care of that. I don't care about the big ways and the little ways that you have screwed up in relationships. I don't care. I'll have you. Follow me. What we see in the Bible and the reason that we're going to bother with it all semester is that the things that you did once, and for some of you, the things that you can't stop doing, Jesus says, I will take those things on myself so that you might go free and not have to be in bondage to them anymore. Friends, that is good news because you want to know what it will cost you? Nothing. Jesus says, if anyone calls on me, he will be saved. You will be freed from your bondage, your past, your present, and you will have hope for the future. And that is good news. And all semester long, we're going to take that message and apply it to how we interact with one another in friendships, in dating, what marriage one day hopefully will be for some of you. But even if it's not for some of you, how you can live a joyful and fulfilled life as a single person, as a celibate person. We're going to look at what all of that looks like. Because, friends, Jesus is at the center. It's His story. And if you find Him, you will find joy, no matter your circumstances. Please pray with me as the announcers come back up. Lord Jesus, thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word. We pray that You would uh, use it Uh, to change us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.